listening to sermon audio from River City Church in Fargo, North Dakota. River City Church exists to make disciples of Jesus who make disciples of Jesus through the gospel of Jesus. You can find out more about River City by visiting our website at www.rivercityfargo.org. Let's pray. Father, you'd send Jesus Christ to come near to us in our brokenness, in our despair, in our place of death, to come and to rescue and redeem, to come and to ransom. Oh, what love. Praise your holy name. Would you help us this morning to continue to praise you, to see you in all of your glory, that you, Lord Jesus, would humble yourself to come, Emmanuel, to be with us. We praise you. Would you receive our worship this morning, for you alone are deserving of it. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. We're continuing our uh, walk through the season of Advent together, uh, and uh, I'm just really glad to be with you. So today is technically the, the second Sunday in Advent, and the theme, if you will, for this season over these next number of weeks here at River City is just one word, it's joy. And it comes from the words of John, uh, from Jesus, excuse me, in John 15, Jesus says, that Jesus says that my joy would be in you, talking to his disciples, and that your joy would be full. And so the aim, our, our intention over these next few weeks, every Sunday as we move towards celebrating Christmas, which our culture loves to do, is that your joy in Jesus would increase week after week after week. Last week we looked at what John told us about Jesus, John chapter 1, verse 16, that from, for from his fullness, we have all received grace upon grace. And so for the next number of weeks, for the next four weeks or so, our hope is to kind of stack up these graces that we see and have received in Jesus. So every week, we're going to look at an aspect of Jesus coming to us and his essential, essential gift of grace in a particular aspect of his incarnation if that makes any sense. And so the hope is that as we're stacking up those graces, our joy would just continue to increase as we see the beauty and wonder and majesty of Jesus again and again in fresh ways. So that's the, that's the plan. That's our hope this Christmas time. And so with that, I just want to welcome you. I'm glad to be together today. One last thing. At the back uh, table next to the giant staircase, um, uh, where we've been uh, selling like little mugs and coasters and stickers and stuff that relate to the building project. On the other side of that table, um, I don't have a copy with me. I might have a screen. There it is. Um, we have these little devotionals from Desiring God. They were very generous uh, with us, and so we have many copies. We've talked about the last couple of weeks. Um, it's just a, a devotional thought, a piece of scripture each day from the 1st of December to the 25th. And if you haven't grabbed one of those, there's still plenty left. We'd love for you to take one as part of your own personal worship or your family worship or time around the dinner table uh, reflecting on 
Jesus. So that's the, those are there. They're in the back. They're yours absolutely free. Let's get after our text today. You can go ahead and grab your Bibles and turn to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10. If you need a Bible, some of the strike team will be coming around uh, serving us today, and they can hand you a Bible and um, turn to Mark, chapter 10. We're going to look at just a few verses, starting in verse 42 of Mark 10. And just let me give you a little bit of a, of a framework. Jesus is kind of in this extended time of teaching on, on various things. He teaches about marriage. Uh, it's where we read this little passage in Mark 10 where Jesus has let the little children come to me. Jesus talks about the rich young, this rich young man. He talks about his death. This is now the third time in Mark, by the time we get here to Mark 10, where Jesus has tried to let his disciples know, hey, I'm, I'm going to be dying here in a, little, in a little bit, and maybe you don't understand it, but, but this is going to happen. It's part of the sovereign plan of the Father. And then, starting in verse 35, two of Jesus' disciples, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, start having a conversation amongst themselves, and then they start asking, they ask Jesus a question. They ask him, Grant to us, they say, to sit on, on one, one of us we want to sit at your right hand, and one of us we want to sit at your left hand when you come in all power, when you come in your kingdom. And Jesus says, you have no idea what you're asking. And that's where we're going to pick up our text. Verse 42 of Mark chapter 10. So I invite you to follow along. Mark chapter 10, starting in verse 42. Here's the word of the Lord for us this morning. And Jesus called them to himself and said to them, this is talking to, he called all the disciples to himself, said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Verse 45 For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is God's word for us this morning. One of the first graces that we receive in Jesus is seen here in verse 45. That the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And that's kind of the big idea I want us to... To, to work with this morning as we look at this text, that Jesus came to serve us and meet our greatest need. Let me say that one more time. Jesus came to serve us and to meet our greatest need. Now, I say that phrase, and some of you are already a little uncomfortable. You're like, well, hold on a second. We, we want to be really careful to not get too us-focused here, Right? In our culture, it's easy to be us-focused because all of our world just always revolves around us. And so we are the, typically the sun in our own solar system. So we need to be really careful here. Some of you might be thinking, hold on a second. Wait a minute. Jesus came to bring glory to the Father. And maybe, maybe we get looped into that, but, but, but let's not make too much of us, Jake, this morning. Now, to the concept that Jesus came to bring glory to the Father, I'd give you a hearty amen. 
But I also mean that God's purpose of redemption, which includes the redeeming of sinners, is not a second thought and not an afterthought. Here's, here's what I mean. If we started reading just a little bit earlier, like, I, like I, I talked about giving a little bit of the context, these two disciples of Jesus, James and John, they're discussing with each other and maybe even arguing a bit with each other as to who's greater. Now, typically you'd expect two brothers to be fighting over who's better, right? But here they are, as disciples of Jesus, in the presence of Jesus himself, arguing with themselves as to which one of them is greater. And so they go to Jesus. Again, just think about this for a second. They go over to Jesus and they make a request. And they say, Lord, when you enter into your kingdom, can you make sure that one of us sits on your right-hand side and one of us sits on your left? So to sit at someone's right hand, that phrase is to be their like chosen representative, their primary ambassador, their chief advisor, the one who, when he speaks, speaks on behalf of the, the king whose hand he's sitting on. That's where we get this term. You've heard the term, right-hand man. Right? If someone is your right-hand man, that's, that's where it comes from, essentially. The one who sits on your right is one of authority. They have the authority of the king that they're who they're sitting next to. And the one on the left would also be of, a, of importance, probably just, you know, next in line kind of thing. But here they are. They want to be advisors to the king of the universe when Jesus comes in his power. And John Piper, giving commentary on this little interaction of James and John, says, well, they get one thing right. James and John get one thing right. Jesus will take his kingly seat in glory someday and rule over the cosmos. And James and John truly believe this, otherwise they wouldn't have asked. So without throwing them completely under the bus, James and John do get that right. But they also are missing something pretty crucial. And Jesus kind of gently but directly calls them out. I don't think you guys know exactly what it is you're asking. Will you drink the cup that I will drink, Jesus asks him. Will you be baptized? Will you endure the baptism that I'm going to endure, Jesus asks them. Now what is he talking about when he questions them? Jesus is talking about drinking the cup of death. He, he's, he's undergoing the baptism of suffering. Now, James and John don't know what he meant, really. So they say, yeah, we'll, we'll drink the cup. We'll, we'll endure. And Jesus says, you're right. You, you will drink the cup. <laughs> you will drink the cup of death. You will endure the baptism of suffering. And church history tells us that both James and John were martyred for their faith in Christ Jesus, drinking the cup of death, enduring the baptism of suffering. In fact, all the disciples endured hardship and persecution and suffering and death for the sake of Jesus. And then Jesus says this in verse 40, right before the text we read. To sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it's for those for whom it has been prepared. Jesus, in his humanity, is appealing to the will of the Father who has orchestrated and sovereignly planned all of human history. And Jesus says, It'll be okay. God's got this. God is working out his will, and he doesn't need James or John's or anyone else's opinion about how it should go. 
That's what Jesus is saying. And then verse 41 tells us that the 10 other disciples hear this request from James and John and they get indignant. They get upset. I mean, you can imagine, right? James and John are arguing and then they're going to insert themselves and talk with Jesus about trying to gain some kind of position for themselves. And the other 10 are like, hey, who do you guys think you are? Because I think it's reasonable. Not only were they a little maybe upset with them for even thinking it, but perhaps the other 10 were just a little upset because James and John brought it up first. Right? And that's why I think Jesus pulls them all together in this moment. Because it's likely they were all thinking about themselves, their own relationship to Jesus, and maybe thinking of themselves a little more highly than they ought. And that's why I think what happens next happens next. And that's where we pick up our text. Verse 42, Jesus calls all these disciples together, and then he tells them this. I know we read it, but I'm going to say it again. Those who are considered rulers among the Gentiles... They lord their authority over the people they lead. That's their assumption. Their idea of leadership is to say, I am the leader, so you all need to follow me. But verse 43, Jesus tells them, but this is not how it should be with you. Whoever would be great among you, Jesus says, must be your servant. Whoever would be first among you must be slave to all. And then Jesus says this, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So my argument today, that Jesus comes as our servant, actually is aimed at making much of God. And as a bonus, you and I get great joy in actually being served. God is glorious, and he gives the grace of his son Jesus, who came to serve us. And so in these few verses, I want to unpack kind of two realities here. First is the example of the servant, and second is the glory of the servant. The example of the servant and the glory of the servant. First, look at verse 45 again. He says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. Jesus is referring to himself here. Son of man is a messianic title that Jesus, all throughout Mark and the other gospels, it's pointed back to him. So Jesus is saying, even me. Do you want to know what true greatness looks like in the kingdom of God, Jesus says? Look to the one who serves. And then he just points to himself The Son of Man. And then he says, because the Son of Man even came, not so that others would serve him, but so that he might be servant. Now this is, I think, the easiest part of this text to see. If you've read through this text before, or you've heard it taught, or you've done a study of it, this, I think, is the easiest part to see, that Jesus is pointing to himself and saying, if you wish to be great in the kingdom... You go low. You're the servant. Those who wish to become great shall be your servant. Whoever wishes to be first among you must be slave of all. And so I think it's good for us. We should see the example of Christ here as the ultimate servant. If you look at uh, another practical example, you don't have to turn there. You can if you want. John chapter 13. 
Jesus, their teacher, the one they call Lord, the one they call Master. In John 13, Jesus gets up from the table where they are all fellowshipping and feasting. He takes off his outer cloak, wraps a big, large linen towel and ties it around his waist, grabs a bowl and a pitcher of water, and he goes to each of his disciples And he bends down onto his knees, taking a lowly position, and begins to pour water over their feet and using the towel wrapped around his waist to wash and wipe their feet. Now we're going to come back to this exchange between Jesus and Peter here in a minute. But in verse 12, after Jesus is done washing the feet of all his disciples, including Judas, by the way, that one's for free, he returns to his place Verse 12 of John 13, and he asks this question. Jesus does. Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for I am. If then I, Jesus says, your teacher and your Lord have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do just as I have done to you. John 13 helps us understand Mark 10 a little bit here. And Jesus says something very similar. He says, whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. Jesus models this as he gets up from the table and does the thing around the table in the washing of feet that the noble guest at the, at the party would never do. This is a job reserved for the servant and probably like the new guy, the lowest on the totem pole. We won't even get into how dirty first century sandaled feet probably were, right? Jesus is telling us something about the economy and the structure of his kingdom that is different than how the kingdoms of men operate. In the kingdom of God, it's not the exercise of overwhelming and overpowering authority that marks greatness. It's actually servanthood. It's the way of Jesus. In fact, one of the titles given to Jesus is the suffering servant. It comes from the scripture that Luke read this morning, Isaiah 53. Now think about this. The prophet Isaiah is writing approximately 700 years before the birth of Jesus. And Isaiah writes this. He's speaking of the coming promised Savior. He says this. He was despised. He's rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Verse 4. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken. Smitten by God and afflicted, but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And a couple verses later, Isaiah 53, verse 11. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities." So I think it's clear that Jesus is showing himself to be an ultimate example of the ultimate servant. Jesus says, my, in my kingdom, the first shall be last, the last shall be first. You want position? 
You want authority? You want glory? You know how to get it in the kingdoms of men. You just step over everyone you need to to get there. You work harder, you build up more, and you attain it. You take it. And Jesus says, that's not how it works here. You want glory and authority in the kingdom? I mean, that's what the disciples were arguing about, right? Who gets to be important in the kingdom alongside Jesus? Jesus says the road to greatness in the kingdom is the road of suffering. It's the road of service. It's the washing of feet. It's the perseverance under suffering. It's drinking the cup that God pours you, facing even death with joy. That's the call to be my disciples, Jesus says. It's not a road to a powerful title. It's not a a position of privilege over someone else. It's the road through suffering to glory and through servanthood to greatness. And Jesus is saying, I am the example of what genuine and perfect servanthood looks like. Just a couple of chapters earlier in the book of Mark, Jesus is doing miracles and calling out Pharisees, all the fun stuff. He tells his disciples he's going to have to suffer and be rejected and killed. Mark chapter 8, verse 34, we read this. Calling the crowd with him, to him, excuse me, with his disciples, he says to them, if anyone would come after me, and remember, he's just talked about him having to die. And he says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the entire world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? This is what Jesus is calling his disciples to. And this is what Jesus is calling us to if we're to follow him. There's a man named Diedrich Bonhoeffer. He was a uh, Lutheran pastor in Germany. He was hanged, actually, April 9th, 1945, by the SS for his part in a failed assassination attempt of Hitler. Bonhoeffer had a number of books and other writings in his ministry. One of my favorites of his is called The Cost of Discipleship. I recommend it to you. In that book, there's a fairly well-known quote that Bonhoeffer writes. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So there's a practical question for us to ask when we think about this. When we look at Christ, our example, as the ultimate and perfect servant, that he's calling us to follow him, the question kind of rises to the surface. He can't help it. What does it look like for me to take up my cross and follow Jesus? What does foot washing look like where God has placed me? Who is it that God has called me to serve? I think these are good questions for us to ask as we consider Christ, his call to follow him as he is the example of the faithful servant. Now, as important as it is that Jesus is our example, that we should follow, I do think it marks out some boundaries. This is what a faithful life of a disciple of Jesus looks like. I also don't want us to miss something, that the suffering servant is way, way, way more than merely an example. 
Which leads to my second point this morning, and possibly the more uncomfortable, and I would argue more significant reality of Jesus, the Son of Man, who is the suffering servant, and, and that is this. There's a unique glory that's reserved for Jesus, who serves us. Let's look again at Mark, verse, uh, excuse me, Mark 10, verse 45. Jesus says, For even... The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and, sentence isn't over, and give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came to serve as the ransom. Paul uses the word propitiation, the sacrificial lamb whose blood pays for and washes and takes away sin. John Piper says it in this way in his uh, conversation on Mark 10 here. He says that Jesus says in effect in verse 45 that this radical call to discipleship, to follow him, to take up our cross, this call to come and to drink the cup of suffering and service, this is not a call to serve Jesus, but a call to be served by Jesus as we serve others and to be ransomed by him from death. Piper says, let me say this again to be sure you hear it correctly. The good news, and he says the good news of Christmas, the good news of the gospel, is that the radical call to Christian discipleship is not a call to serve Jesus, but to be served by Jesus as we serve others and to be ransomed by him from death. Jesus turns the entire paradigm of who is worthy of glory and honor, he turns it completely upside down. When Jesus talks about the Gentile rulers in, in, in Mark 10, that they, they lord it over those who, of whom they're over authority, he's not saying, I don't think, that all these Gentile rulers, every one of them are cruel taskmasters who rule harshly over their people. I think sometimes we can read that into it. We can read into it, surely those guys must be jerks because Jesus says, look how mean they are. But I don't think that's what Jesus is actually saying. He's saying they're seeking after honor and glory because they have a high position. They think that their position gives them this kind of honor and glory and authority. And the, exception, uh, the expectation of those leaders is that they would be served by those who are their subjects. That's all he's saying. They're not inherently cruel. They just have authority wrong. They think that if they're leaders, then those who are the servants should serve and honor them. But Jesus says that's not how leadership works in the kingdom of God. In fact, I think Jesus is refusing the service of his disciples. Here's, here's, here's what, I'm, what I mean. In John chapter 13, and we looked at it just a minute ago, when Jesus gets up to wash his disciples' feet, his disciples feet, Jesus gets to Peter. So Jesus bends down to wash Peter's feet and Peter objects. Jesus is Peter's teacher. Jesus is Peter's master. He shouldn't be doing the servant's job. Verse, thir- uh, verse 6, excuse me, of John 13. He came to Simon Peter, Jesus did, who said to him, 
Lord, do you wash my feet? Peter asks. Jesus answered him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter says to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answers Peter and says this, if I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Think about that for a second. If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Jesus is insisting that he is the servant. He insists on being the washer. Why? Because Jesus is doing something that we absolutely cannot do on our own. Jesus is not really talking about foot washing here. If he doesn't wash our feet, we remain eternally filthy. If he doesn't serve us, if he doesn't give himself, if he doesn't ransom us, it is impossible for us to be rescued and to be saved. That's what Jesus is saying. I didn't come as your Lord so that you would serve me, Jesus says. I came as your servant that I might serve you so that I might ransom you from sin and death. And Jesus is the only one who can serve us in this way. Who else, who else could pay the price for my sin? Who else is worthy? Who else is holy and righteous and unblemished? Who else could serve us like this? There's a unique glory in Jesus, our servant. And Jesus does this willingly. (laughs) He chooses to do this. Jesus says, I lay down my life, John 10. I lay down my life that I may take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. See, when we think of servant, we think of the one who does the lowly task, the one who takes orders And well, Jesus does, according to his humanity, submit to the will of the Father and get to the lowly task. We don't think of Jesus, our servant, as if we are his master. That's not how we're to think about this. Rather, I want us to start maybe thinking about Jesus as the only one who can meet this need, the only one who can serve us in the way that we need most to be served. There is a unique glory in Jesus, our servant. And part of it is this. The call to follow him, the call to to love others sacrificially, to take up our cross, to lay down our lives, to drink the cup, to endure hardship. I don't know about you, but I'm going to need some help in this. We are absolutely desperate for his help if we're to actually follow his call and follow him. We need his help, his service to these ends every moment of every day. And in our display of need, we honor him. He actually gets the glory in our weakness and need, in our admission of our absolute dependence on him. It's worship, it's trust, We are living then by faith because there's no way we will make it through if not 
for Jesus coming and serving us. And he rejoices in and receives the glory that's due his name as we trust him, as we lean on him to be our ransom and our help. He receives glory that he's due when we rely on Jesus to sustain us, to strengthen us, to sanctify us by the power of his spirit. There is glory in Jesus who serves us. Now, you might be familiar familiar with the phrase. It actually comes up a lot at Christmas, sometimes parents with children. It is better to give than to receive. It actually comes from Acts chapter 20. Apostle Paul says to the elders of the church at Corinth that Jesus is the one who said it is more blessed to give than to receive. And while this is a good object lesson for us as parents, (laughs) in a season that is far too often marked by stress, And consumerism, it also reminds us that Jesus himself gets all the blessing. (laughs) Jesus himself is living out Acts 20, verse 35. The one who is forever blessed takes joy in giving. And here's how the grace of Jesus coming to serve us can be for us a source of joy as well. You and I need to be reminded that we are the ones in need. We're the desperate ones. We can't outserve Jesus. We can try, but we're foolish if we think we can. We need to receive his service. And here's two ways I think that happens. First, We respond in faith to his offer of ransom. Jesus says, I've come. Son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom. Jesus has come to serve by offering himself as a ransom for many. That's the first thing. And there might be some of us here in this room who have been content to be adjacent to Jesus. Like you're glad he's in the room with you and you're in the room with him, but you've never actually turned from your sin and repentance. You've never turned to Jesus in faith. You've refused to let Jesus serve you in this way. But unless he washes you, you have no part with him. So receive the joy that is being offered to you in Jesus this morning. Receive the gift of Jesus as your ransom to cover your sin and to make you new. That's the first thing and the foundational thing. The second is for those disciples of Jesus who have responded in faith, who do trust in him as a ransom, who need to be reminded of the gospel, because we forget. If we read a passage like Mark 10, uh, 42 through 45, and our main takeaway this morning is only the first point that Jesus is our example and we need to try hard to follow after him, or if we hear, okay, so the first got to be last, so I'm going to have to work my way to the back of the table. If that's what we hear today, that our only takeaway is that we have to be slave to all and we are earning our way into the servants' quarters, which is kind of a backwards thing, but we tend to do that anyway, I think we're missing the gospel. John Piper, again, I know I quoted him earlier. He, he had this, and I, I thought about paraphrasing it, but I'm just going to quote it because it's better. He says, if Christmas only meant that a man appeared on the scene of history to call others to be servants, it would not be good news. 
If Jesus just showed up and said, I'm calling you to follow me, buckle up, let's go, and that was the end of it, it would not be good news, Piper says. He says, what we need is salvation. (laughs) Amen. We need salvation from guilt and death and hell, and we need power. We need power to drink the cup of suffering in the path of service. What we need is someone who can forgive our sins and ransom us from guilt and death and the wrath of God. We need that. And, he says, who can give us new life with the power to die for each other in the service of love. This is the help that we need. And this is the service that Jesus offers. He ransoms us from sin and guilt and death. And he is our help every moment of every day empowering us by his spirit to die to ourselves and to live lives of service and love and compassion for the spreading of the kingdom of Jesus on earth in the lives of people. So as we continue to work through this season of Advent, let me just encourage you to just meditate for a moment and marvel in this undeserved grace that Jesus the eternal Son of God humbled himself and wrapped himself in human flesh and suffered as we suffer. Jesus came to serve us and to meet our deepest and greatest needs, to ransom us and to redeem us and to be our source, our sole source of strength as we follow Jesus here for his glory, and for the advancement of the gospel. It is the joy of Jesus to serve his people. And because of his service, our joy is full. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we, when we really consider it, when we really think about it, it is frankly a little overwhelming that you would even want to come. Because your word tells us it's not because we're worthy. It's not because you looked down through the corridor of time and said, they're going to make it eventually. They'll get better. We were enemies and dead in our sin. And Jesus, in your mercy, you came to ransom an unworthy people and make an unworthy people worthy. Would you forgive us for our hard-heartedness and our stubbornness and unwillingness to be served by you as if somehow you don't know what you're doing or we're fine how we are? Would you break our hearts of stone and the scales that tend to grow up around our hearts, that we might surrender to you afresh, that we might receive your rescue and your ransom. And that we might open our hands to stop fighting in our own strength, but instead to receive yours, to receive your power and by your spirit, 
to endure, to persevere with joy? Would your strength be made perfect in our weakness and in our inability? I pray in seeing you fresh, with fresh eyes, Jesus, as a servant, that we would just fall on our faces and worship you. That as we taste the bread and the cup, the ultimate tangible expression of service, your death for us, the shedding of your blood, would cause us to respond in awe and in worship. Thank you. Thank you that you've come to serve your people and to make us your people. Would you encourage us and empower us? Would you fill us with joy? In Jesus' name, amen.